Hello and welcome to Revenue Riser. This episode is all about leading growth in a volatile world. In particular, how do we lead faster than market growth in a flat or unpredictable market? I'm your host, Anna Britnell Guest, and I'm joined today by two tech leaders who I've come to know over the last couple of years and who share a real passion for driving growth in their organisations. Lauren White is from Bamboo Technology. And since we recorded this conversation, Lauren has been promoted from MD to CEO. So congratulations, Lauren. Bamboo is a company dedicated to helping their customers shape their own business futures through highly compliant comms, IT and software solutions. And I'm also joined by Jamie Melalu, Chief Revenue Officer at Silicon Valley software company UserZoom. UserZoom is a fast-growing UX insights platform which helps their customers to transform the digital experiences that they deliver. Now, how to scale up your revenue is obviously a big subject. So let's dive right in with a question to you, Lauren. Now, most leaders agree that getting the right structure and people in place is key. So what kinds of things have you been focusing on at Bamboo? Um, well, the last couple of years, it was it it was more about the people than I suppose the organisational structure of the business to start with. And, and it was about getting the right kind of experience um, and the right kind of leadership qualities into the team. So we, I suppose the only type of structural piece we looked at was introducing a um, an operational board. So the business had been run typically by the exec board and the shareholders, um, and that works well to a point. Um, and I think when you want to move from, I suppose, being that small business mentality into the corporate world and you start to change the kind of targets that you're looking for, um, and what markets you want to get in and how you want to access them. You need the right people. And and typically, I say typically, my, my experience having been in that business for so long was that it was quite easy to see that as shareholders, we weren't all the right people to make that happen. And, um, and so um, I had actually quite a challenging conversation with my fellow shareholders um, when I had to um, ask them, I would say politely, but it wasn't all too politely, to actually back off from the day-to-day business and allow me to build an operational team that would actually run the business on a day-to-day basis. I, I was going to say I tried to sort of force them as sideways, but I didn't really. What I wanted to do was have that team and myself we focus on the sort of funding and the buy and build program that we've got in place and actually be solely focused on that. But that could only happen by bringing the right people in to actually run the business on a day-to-day basis. So we created the operational board and that that's kind of been a, oh, what are we on now? Probably two years, two years in. So um, that's been a quite a long process. I'd love to say that you could recruit the right people, you know, within three months, but clearly if you want the right people, they've typically got six months notice. There's a whole negotiation period. Um, and also there's a bit of a test and trial of, you know, the conversations that you're having with them are, you're really just trying to feel out are they the right fit unless you know them already. Um, but that that's kind of been the last couple of years. And we brought people in from outside of the industry and not even necessarily with clear cut roles. So there was one one particular um, chap on my team who I knew when I met him, I don't, that, just a gut feel that this guy needs to be in my team. And that was about, you know, the, can I get this guy in? is there a job role? Well, there is, but it's a hundred different things that I need you to look at. Um, but if that's what you're after, then then in you come. Um, and that that's probably been the changing. That's been a real pivot point was bringing him into the business. And that was the start of that kind of roller coaster of then bringing other people who could operate at that level. And it's fundamentally changed 
the conversations that we have, the way the business is operating and what markets we can get into and which clients we can get in front of. I'm a little like that, you know, sometimes you just get that gut feeling, you think this is the this is the person for us for, you know, be it the role or just the kind of the energy or whatever it is that you're looking to kind of bring in. But then when sometimes you don't have that gut feel and you've got yeah. to kind of move away from it, how do you yeah, I, I, admit it, I get quite nervous about that. I think that that's when you that's when you have your kind of sleepless nights. I suppose that's that it's the heart and the head. The head's telling you it's the right decision because based on CV and yeah. you know uh, people have told their referrals recommendations. Yeah, great, great person. They're going to be amazing. They'll be a real fit for you. But you can't quite qualify it with your gut. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of nervousness. And you know what? I'm, I'm quite happy to hold my hands up and say I've been in that situation a number of times. And we made mistakes. Some of the mistakes I've made are really, you've, I think sometimes you know when your gut is not telling you, actually, it's maybe not right. But you'll try it anyway. Well, there's a really interesting, yeah. <laughs> there's a really interesting thing with decision making. And um, in another one of these episodes, I'm talking with Azzy Aslam, who's done a lot of work around neuroscience. And he says, you know, when we make decisions as human beings, we, you know, we may well weigh up and evaluate all the facts and figures and, you know, make the decision with the head. But the final question we ask ourselves before we sign on the dotted line is, does this feel right? And whatever the decision is, we always, that's always the final question that's going through our minds. And sometimes it might not feel right, even if you know, headwise it's saying it is right. And I think you know, we, need to, we need to get those two things in balance. Um, but I think you know, the flip side is that there's quite often a tendency to recruit people and want to work with people that we like. Yeah. And that can sometimes, you know, on the flip side, actually blinker us a little bit to people that maybe have the better skill sets or are a better complement to the team who can perhaps make other things happen so it's yeah it's a tricky it's an interesting subject and it's a tricky one when you're trying to build that really effective team isn't it yeah, yeah. but I think that that's part of your own personal development as well isn't it I, I, as a as a leader you, you you're learning all the time anyway and, I, and certainly when you're going from that small business mentality as well into you kind of wanting to ramp up I think you you know deep down the things that you need to do but you also want to be for a period of time you want to be the nice boss you want to be the nice person that says I really like that person I want to give them a chance and so there's a real mindset and step change I think to when you when you go on that acquisition that growth path that actually you just have to be a bit harder about those decisions and you have to drop some of the what's the right word some of the fluffiness around all of that actually it just has to be really sound strategic decisions but with a hint of gut I, I, I yeah, don't know. I think you can't lose it. Yeah. No, we, we spent a bit of time talking about as we were trying to scale our, our sales teams, you know, what's the, what are the characteristics that we want to look for that usually drive that gut feeling so we could better test for it as well as just, just try and wait for it to happen, I suppose. And it's really interesting. The minute we started that conversation, it was nothing to do with sales track record or, you know, uh, can they convince me? It, it it came to be about things like, you know, are they competitive but with a bit of charm, and 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 are they, you know, intelligent but curious with that intelligent about about other things? And we we came up with about five or six criteria in the end. And when we did that, and that proved to be successful, and we were able to scale the sales team. We did a similar thing when we were looking for some of our sort of key management roles about what is it that we need 
from a characteristics perspective rather than an experience because they, they probably shouldn't walk me through the door if they've not got the experience in the first place. Mm. And that, that's helped us, you know, a fair bit. So it's not about ignoring the gut, but it's maybe getting a bit more specific from the kind of, let's say, factual side of it that sort of informs the gut, if you know what I mean. It's hard yeah, to- I think so. We, I remember running an exercise um, when the business was much smaller. I was looking after the kind of service teams and one of the things I would try to do, this is going to sound terrible now, so, um, but when we when we brought people in to to go through the interview process, but we'd we I think we'd kind of always done a telephone interview first, and we built, as you said, we kind of built that framework of what are the soft, it's not soft skills, but what are the soft characteristics of the individual that we need to do that job. And um, you kind of get through all of that. But one of the great things that we could do when somebody was coming in for an interview is deliberately drop something on the floor. And really just the very simple act of does that person go to pick that thing up for me to help me or does that person leave that on the floor because they think it's not their job to pick it up and help? And little things like that are really, really key, but that becomes much more difficult when you start to look at senior roles. And yeah, I mean, how do you really, how do you do that with senior people? I I don't know, maybe that's what you're saying. There's kind of, if you can put some kind of, criteria to or profiling to put something more I don't know tangible to just your gut feel but yeah I, th- I think it's a challenge I think inevitably we do drop back to that gut as you said it's the last thing that you think about how do I feel about that and actually like I said before I think you know when it's not quite right and I also know that six months down the line in here you know in your head you're thinking I knew that I knew that was wrong and I still I still made the call on it, but that's, you know, that's okay sometimes. Yeah, I don't think you can have a perfect track record when it comes to hiring. I just, maybe you can, but, but I, I, I've, I've certainly not, and I don't know many people that have. It's, there's, what you just try and do is get a lot more right than you get wrong because it's just, yeah, it's not a great experience for you or that person if the fit's not quite right. Plus the people that they work with and they, they say, you know, hire slow and fire quick. But I don't think anybody wants to be a, a quick firer. And so even if you've made a bad hire, you probably hold on just a little too long and in the desperate hope that it turns around. I think everyone's probably been there as a senior manager. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it's, it's human, isn't it? Right. It's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's human. You want to be human. You don't want to be a, a, a machine. Um, and you don't want to be seen as the leader that's got no empathy I think a lot of yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to values and whether you're recruiting in junior roles or senior roles, you need that alignment of of values and to understand people's values because I think you know when when the going gets tough and you have difficult conversations, if if you understand each other's values and there's an alignment of that and an alignment with the company, you can find a way through it. Whereas if you have very different values, it's a lot of uh, a lot of friction and conflict. You know, and I was thinking back while you were talking that my first real experience of that was about, I think about 20 years ago. And I did some work with, um, it was the launch of Virgin Mobile, actually. And they were first recruiting their, um, their call center staff. And their entire recruitment process was based around alignment to the Virgin values. And they could not care less whether people had call center experience. In fact, in many cases, that was considered a disadvantage because it would be preconceived yeah. ideas. And, and the whole thing was around recruiting to that. And it was all to do with embedding those, those values. And you could see it in the individuals and the enthusiasm and passion and, and excitement around the, the roles. And I think, you know, you can build that up 
as you look at more senior leaders and, and where their values sit um, and where some of their behavioral preferences sit. So I think there is some profiling around that that you can do to try and make sure that those individuals are, are going to come in with some similar or complementary values that will allow you to, to work effectively. That's, yeah, that's interesting. The Harvard Business Review did a, did a piece and they were saying they believe that this most successful salespeople need only two things, high empathy for people and a high ego drive, a high need to sell. You put those two things together and they are much more likely to be rock stars than, than if they're only strong in one or, of course, strong in neither, which is, you know, I've never had the, uh, I guess, courage maybe to just completely hire salespeople on those two things and only test for those two things. Um, but we do try and look for it a little bit. Yeah, do you, but do you think that applies that applies to any type of salesperson? So, I mean, is there still that, that differentiation between a, and to use old terms, a hunter and a farmer, or or actually, are we all now working with a kind of a team of people who have got a blended kind of skill set? Yeah. Like I say, I've never had the courage just to test for those two things and only those two things because I agree with you. I think there's there's, there's probably slightly more to it. So, you know, famously, grit is a, is a good indicator of success in any role, regardless of whether it's sales or anything else. There's, there's you know, a bunch of TED Talks on that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, we test for grit and a few other things as well. But I think I think the hunter-farmer thing, it's a bit reductive these days. And I think mm. what 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 you need in sales at scale anyway is can this person thrive in the environment by following the processes we need them to follow and you know the 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 hunter side of it which is i guess the closest thing is like new logo acquisition you know famously these days it's like educate and challenge not build a just build a relationship and then on the post first transaction side the account management role, particularly in SaaS software, has, has become notoriously difficult to pin down exactly what that is and what the skill sets are. Gartner do this whole thing on it, uh, transform, transform into a account management-led organization. And um, that's that's a role we've struggled with. We've When we promoted internally from some of our other teams, they've always done very, very well. When we've recruited externally, we've not got anywhere near the same hit rate. And and that's that that role is a little more of a blend, I guess, I suppose, to your to your point. It's tricky. Sounds to me like you operate in a similar way. You kind of people are improve, I suppose, and, in, and increase their um, opportunities through the business as a primary route rather than bringing people in externally. Certainly since since you know I became CRO a couple of years back, we've put a lot of work into things like career paths and trying to create opportunities to pr- promote from within. A, I just kind of believe in it, but but B, I read um, an article ages ago and it was saying something like it takes on average three years for somebody to completely pick up a company culture and how things are done and what X, Y, Z means in terms of them and their job. And and when you think about that, that's that's, that's a huge amount of time um, in any company's life. And so if you can promote within it, it's a really good idea if, if you can and, and we've we've done that with, with a lot of success a lot of many of our top performers are internal promotions leadership is tricky um and we've done both so we've promoted uh, internally uh, leaders um and you've just got to accept that 
particularly if it's their first leading role, you know, you've got to put a, a you know, a training and support and, and kind of peer system around them to, to help them do that. And then we've, you've also brought in external leaders as well, some through recruitment and actually some through acquisition. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've recognized that they were really good and, and found them a role in the, in the, in the company structure. So I guess used a blended approach, right? Jamie, you mentioned something interesting that I think ties us back into that question about getting the structure around the people in place. And you talked about, you know, finding the right people with the right skills who can work within the structure and the processes that you want them to. And I think you know, that's a really interesting and important point because part of, part of growth is about having people focus on the right things and work consistently. And, and in order to scale, you need that consistency across the business and and having that common language and some common behaviors so that you can you can see what works, what doesn't work, what do we need to do more of, what do we need to do less of um, across the business. So um, how, how, do you, how do you try and get those things in place so that people do understand this is the process to follow and, and what are you finding works for you in, in making, that, making that shift? Yeah, all good questions. The first one, specialization. You know, um, not certainly not something we've invented, but take each part of the sales process and make sure you've 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 got a very defined role around that. So, so we have, for example, sales development that do a lot of research around, you know, the right kind of organisations and people that we should be probably reaching out to, and then they look after that outreach and drive some conversations around whether it'd be mutually beneficial to spend a bit more time together. Then the AE goes in and, and does the kind of the more classic kind of sales process. And then post-transaction, we have AMs that look after the, the customer from there and upsell and renew. I, I would say that's the, that's the first thing. And then after that, it's just been relentless with trying to design and stick to a process and help your people ad- adopt the process and coach to it. And, and we've just had to be kind of real sticklers about it. Before I became CRO in this business, I actually ran Europe and, and I, I had the sales process and we, we got into a really good pattern with it. When I, I became overall CRO in, in my North American teams, they were aware of it, but they weren't really using it. And you get a lot of initial resistance, I think, from to any change in general, particularly in sales, because they don't want to you know, lose the sale, right? Their, their, their job depends on it. And sales is very measured by that number. But what we just tried to do is help them understand that fear of change and give them the opportunity and space to fail. In fact, we, we have it on the wall in a lot of our sales office. We expect you to try, we expect you to fail, we expect you to try again. And and try to explain to them that, look, if we can just get you there, we've just given you the template for success. You've just got to get good at, at wielding it. And so, yeah, we've just been relentless at that. And the more we've, we've, we've done that and the better our teams have got following those those processes, the more predictable we've become, the, the, the more we've grown, and then the more when we do make a small change, because everyone's, for the most part, doing the same thing, we can see the, you know, the, the impact and effect of that change for, for better or worse. Oh, and that's quite, that's a really important part of it, that, that being able to actually report on the differences, because I think that's a big, that's a shift as well, depending on what size business you are and what, what your kind of growth path is. But if you're going from that small to, to, to elevated position, then actually your your ability to um, not understand your numbers, but see your numbers and report on them is actually a, that's that's a huge shift as an organisation to go from um, you know producing really basic management information or you know your monthly set of accounts to actually being able to illustrate that you've got a growing pipeline 
that your individual salespeople are performing to these close ratios or you've got your intelligence gathering up at this level and your renewals are in at, at 90 plus percent or and actually that that's a huge thing I think that that takes quite some time to get to as well not just in terms of um, embedding it in as part of your culture because that is a, also a culture change um, but actually the, the ability to to get really good information because that's also another I think that's a real hit and miss process that you go through you kind of start to elevate your I suppose your board reporting and your sales reporting when it's never you know it's never right to start with and that takes a lot of effort to get that right but again that's about also getting the right people in who understand what you know the typical kind of what what is good what does good look like and what is it that we want to see as a business that matters to us that that be data driven thing is a bit 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 of a misnomer um, or rather people say we want to be data driven but i don't necessarily think they always understand just what that takes you know i, I speak to a few quite a few um, you know leaders in in software businesses that you know we talk about sales and and they say oh well we want a data driven sales leader like okay great do your sales guys use Salesforce? Well, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, what, what are your processes around it? Like there's this whole, you know, a finance feeding into that process. There's this whole thing that you, this whole foundation you need to build before you can be kind of quote unquote, you know, data driven. And, you know, there's these people out there that, that are clearly fantastic at it. HubSpot comes to mind, right? And they speak about it in such a way that you read their blog post sometimes, you go, wow, that, that, that would just be amazing. And, and then you feel very, um, very inadequate. Um, but actually, most people are using data and are on that journey. But, it, you know, a bit like you were saying, Lauren, about leadership, I'm not sure it ever stops. Because no. if, you, if you are growing quickly, and, and we are, you've always got new people that, that don't necessarily know the way, quote unquote. And so, you know, again, we're trying to invest in that to keep, you know, because once we've kind of largely got on that, you know, metronomic kind of process, B, you know, as we're bringing people into the organization at such a rate, we need to do a better job of, of, of automating that and taking the, that heavy lift of education off of our, you know, management teams and, uh, and team leaders. And so, you know, we've recently invested in learning and development. We've brought Anna on. Um, we, we're trying to, you know, create repositories of, of, of this kind of tribal knowledge, for want of a better word, so that there's, there's lots that they can do to educate on the, the way things are done, what we want them to do and what it should look like, what good looks like without that being such a burden on the managers. But, but that's that's definitely one of our challenges right now that we're trying to, uh, trying to tackle. It's definitely a challenge, I think, across most businesses, like you say. I've got, we've got an episode coming up around how to use CRM for more actionable insights and I, coming up in this series. And I think it, it's an interesting one because for many companies, it's a tool that's used for looking looking back a little mm. bit and okay there's a bit of forecasting but it's more about okay what have we done uh, you know we've had some meetings and so on it's not really about okay where are we in this opportunity or this account and what are the insights that this data is giving us to tell us how to actually win it and therefore how and then how to replicate it and there's a big shift and you know, we'll be talking a bit about some of the things that companies can think about to try and get those ducks in a row but you know, a lot of it does come back to you know who who owns the data, why are they using the data, and and actually you know right down at the as a bottom line, you've got to show salespeople there's something in it for them to be part of this data driven process because a lot of salespeople just do not see the benefits to them if they see it purely as a reporting repository of the meetings that they've that they've had. So it's kind of an interesting. I think it's definitely an interesting topic for any company that's trying to grow to understand where they are on that maturity 
journey. Well, yeah. And I think that future focused um, piece is really, really important. But you're right. I think uh, historically people will they'll focus on what they they're looking at what's happened in the past, not what could potentially happen in the future. And I think that also as a, a business that's changing and growing, you kind of go through those phases of having different departments that you think certain profiles sit into. So, you know, we, we've been um, down that path where we we have a sales team, we have a sales support unit, uh, we have a commercial team, we have a finance team and we have a billing team. But actually what what part of any of those teams is looking at the marketplace and what's actually going on what the what the trends are how things are changing i mean the, the most recent situation that we've had obviously with the pandemic that has i think put people in a position where they've started to horizon scan about okay what what should we be looking at in terms of how might the future change but that should be something that's a, a constant if you're wanting to grow and stay on top of it and lead the change but that's a that's also a cultural mindset and having the right roles in the business to to achieve that. So having somebody focused on that, what, what's the market behavior and actually what are the opportunities that exist, not just within the existing data, but within what we think is going to come down the line. And that I think that's a really hard that's a, that's a hard thing to find in software. That's product marketing. You know, again, you know, one of the many things I've learned working with and for an American company is that hyper specialization. So my experience of, of marketing in, in Europe predominantly is, you know, you have a head of marketing and it's all focused around kind of demand gen and content and certainly in, in smaller companies anyway. And it's not that hyper-specialized, but in, in America, you've got, you know, growth marketing, you've got demand gen, you've got customer marketing. And, and the last piece is product marketing. And, and their job or one of their jobs is to figure out what's going on in the market, how, how we are positioned against it, what some of those opportunities might be in a way to message and position our product offering and of course keep an eye on what the competition are doing and how they're going about it and um you know we were we were quite late i think to add product marketing to to our our um, roster um but you know i'm really pleased we did and you know it's, it's really helped us in a, in a number of those areas but back, back to your point Anna, about buy-in we we run a, a project called hit my number you know your target go find out what your average sales value was last year and what your close rate was. And then come back to me and tell me what you, how many opportunities you need this year based on those rates. And just by doing that and then plotting out how they were going to hit their number meant that A, they knew and were bought into those statistics and wanted to keep an eye on them. And then B, some of them would come and go, my uh, deal values are really low compared to the other, other t- you know, members of the team. Like what, what am I doing wrong or right or, Know, or, or maybe their deal values are really high, but their you know, the close rates are really low, and and so that hit my number plan. Something we do now annually with our sales organisations, where they look back at how they did that year and then feed that into this year's plan. Interesting. Now, there's a couple of a couple of areas I want to dig into a little bit in uh, in the rest of this uh, in the rest of this conversation. So, and I think some of this what we're talking about connects us into an area I wanted to ask you a little bit about, Jamie, which is the role of chief revenue officer. Because it's a role that we're seeing more and more of in a, in a lot of companies as they as they hit certain growth points or, or certain growth ambitions. So, uh, you're obviously CRO at UserZoom. So, do you want to just share a little bit about what that role is? But also, you know, I know you're a bit a big advocate for that that role. So, perhaps to talk a bit about what that is and how it helps to tie some of these things together. Yeah, I think particularly if you've got an element of the subscription model in your in your go-to-market, 
it, it it's vital because to to really drive growth, you need to grow you know effectively and efficiently, and and that's all about renewals. You know, it costs a lot of time and effort and money to acquire a new customer, but if you can renew them by keeping them happy and providing value, then you're not dropping it out of the bottom of the bucket. And and so what where that naturally takes you is well, hang on a minute. If if what we're selling isn't renewable because the people doing the selling don't care about renewals, and the people that are doing the renewals don't even know what's being sold, how do we solve for that? And so, uh, from a, from a board perspective, I guess it's just one throat to choke uh, to, that covers all revenue. But actually, it's much more about. I am very very conscious of if we sell in the right way to the right people, then that should help our renewal number, not 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 detract for it, or in fact, not even care about the renewal number. And so. It's it's about that. I think I think a chief revenue officer can think about both the, the the kind of the acquisition and the retention piece, and make hopefully balanced decisions to to fine tune the organisation, which which should in turn maximise your growth potential. Lauren, I think you've uh, been looking as well at that renewal piece in uh, in bamboo, haven't you? Yes, that's it's it's a constant focus it, um, for, for the very reason that, that Jamie's outlined really, and I think as we all know that it, it costs a lot less to retain an existing loyal client than it does to to find a new one. And and actually, I think those existing clients also help set the tone and the culture of the business. And when you lose them, actually, that's that's a loss to everybody in the business. And that's something that you know, there's a there's an impact, a personal impact that you can't really account for. It's important from a financial perspective, but there are other areas that it affects as well. But yeah, that, it's hugely important for us. The problem we have, the challenge we have is because such a large part of our business at the moment is still telecoms. You know, that, that is a, a revenue stream that's got a constantly eroding renewal base. So, you know, we lose year on year, but that that's something that you can change. I think that's what we've learned over the last sort of um, 12 months is, you know, you're always going to have a, a salesperson that can go and, I mean, anybody can sell anything cheap, uh, but actually that person needs training and management and mentoring to understand that actually you don't have to do that. And there are many, many opportunities in which not only can you add additional products in with that client, of course, um, but actually you can renew a contract on better margins um, and I think that that's a real kind of education piece. But again, for me, it's always it's about the people having the right people in the business to actually make sure that that can be delivered from from the top down, and that people have got the skill sets and they understand the process that they need to go through, the conversations they need to have for that to to be real, to be realised. And I think you know, back to your other point, Lauren, earlier, right? If if what you really need is a collaborative effort these days to acquire and keep and renew customers then the CRO role is a good facilitator for that collaboration. If, if, there was, if that role is completely split, it, it becomes a lot, lot harder, whereas I can ensure my management team, for the most part, are aligned on that balance and, and we make sure that we do a lot of you know, collaboration and you know, cross-functional planning to ensure that you know, the sales guys care about what the account managers need as the, as the account transitions over and the renewal rate's high and, and, and hopefully upsells and... And so that account planning piece, for example, is something that all our teams meet, our account teams meet, yeah. new business, account management, SDR, and talk about that that customer or occasionally a prospect that's similar to another customer. And, you know, they can share the knowledge around and hopefully that that, that means we're more successful. But actually, we just do a better job for our customer. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a bit more 
we're a bit more knowledgeable about them and we help them, you know, meet their challenges and, and, and succeed. And that's yeah. a, for me, another key part of that, you know, chief revenue officer role. Yeah. And I think, well, since we last spoke, that's certainly something that we've, we've looked at. I think we, we were kind of, we did a bit of a gap analysis and we recognized that there was something in there that we weren't, we weren't, the glue wasn't there, I suppose, really is what it was. And we were struggling to understand what that, what that role was. And again, we kind of, you always try and pigeonhole it, I think, just so you, you know, let's put a title on it because then you can understand what it is you're actually looking for. And that's the wrong way around. It has to be about what are the gaps and then actually what what is the role that fits with those gaps. And I think the revenue officer was something that was was new, um, you know, in the UK. I kind of think when you think about revenue officer, I immediately think about the tax office. But but actually, when you understand that there's a community of uh, revenue officers that are operating in a in a in a very different environment, and as you kind of told me a bit more about what you do, it, it it's it's kind of pinpointed exactly what it is that we need. And you're right, because at the moment, I suppose, if we had an account that was at risk, you know, it comes into our operational board meeting and we all talk about it with our different hats on, but actually then there's a whole decision point about, well, okay, who's going to do the next bit? And who's, there, is, there isn't actually at the moment anybody in our team that can take ownership of that. Right. Um, and if they did, it would completely distract from the other focus areas that they've got and the other obligations they've got at the moment so yeah I, I mean I, I can see the value in in that in that role very much in UK-based businesses that want to grow so yeah so you oh well I can't sign you up so I'm, I'm gonna have to go and find somebody else <laughs> <laughs> that's plenty of us out there <laughs> but I, but I think you know, also having that visibility across the customer base what customers need how to win them and retain them is really important um, and also I think you know having that visibility across the, the pricing model and the margin model so that you can you can build that uh, build that out maybe, maybe that's a conversation for uh, you know, a, whole, a whole other conversation perhaps as we uh, as we move into wrapping up uh, this one Jamie is there anything you, you do want to say though on that pricing point before we wrap up I mean in the context of you know the, the the overall subject matter here, and, and trying to unlock growth. Pricing is absolutely one of the key levers in software that you can pull on, and you know it can go from incredibly wrong to actually transformative. You know we fundamentally changed our pricing two years ago, and we've quadrupled the usage of our product within our customer base. And I firmly put that down to the pricing, and of course the evolution of the product in the market. But it can be incredibly powerful. When, when it comes to a downturn or an upturn, actually, it's the same thing and it's the same challenge, which is try to align your pricing with value. If you can do that and the customer gets value, then the price increase follows rather than the other way around. Because, you know, again, in a world of subscription, people can leave you and, and join somebody else that they feel provides better value. So just, you know, there's a ton of models out there. I, I'd recommend the um, Open View Partners blog which talks a lot about product-led growth and, and how important pricing is these days in software. Um, and uh, yeah, to spend, spend a, a good amount of time thinking about that because it, it really can help drive growth regardless of the economic headwind. And sometimes that requires a bit of bravery, doesn't it, to break with what people are, are used to to move that, move that forward. I think that's probably a good point, good thinking point to uh, wrap up this conversation. So thank you both very much. As, as parting comments, Jamie, what would be your top tip to sales leaders listening to this? Just your point, I think. Just don't be, a, don't be afraid of change. 
and and make a change with probably the next 12 to 18 months in mind and commit to it and, and follow it through. I think there's a lot of people that worry about a price change or worry about changing the structure or worry about the what if. And that's because it, it feels like it's forevermore. If you, if you just focus on the next 12 months and accept that you're probably going to change again and get used to change and embrace change, uh, get rid of a lot of the fear and, and unlock a lot of that kind of inherent potential in your organization to, to drive growth. Good stuff. And where can people reach you, Jamie? Uh, well, I have a really weird name, Jamie Melaloo. So uh, LinkedIn's a good place to start. In, inbox me there and, you know, yeah, I'll happily uh, answer any questions if anyone's got them. Fantastic. And Lauren, what would be your top tip to sales leaders? Um, I'm very much on the on the same page as Jamie, really. It's all about change. But I think for me, it's, it's much more around the people. Um, and I don't actually know who the original quote, and I probably should look this up so that I know, but it, it really, it, this resonates with me all the time now. Um, but it is, if you can't change the people, then you ne- you do need to change the people. And again, as, as Jamie said, don't be afraid to do that. It, it will fundamentally and radically change your business if you have the right people in your team. Good stuff. And where can people contact you? Um, I'm also, I'm a, a huge LinkedIn fan. So um, I probably um, have a slightly unusually spelt first name rather than last name. Um, but yeah, you should be able to find me quite easily. Fantastic. And pulling that together, I think focus to me is a huge thing for any company trying to grow, you know, focus on where you can win, you know, focus on the battles and and markets, etc, where you can win, and build out that scalable consistency, so that you you can see what you're doing, you know what to do more of and, and what to do less of as you learn what's working in your in your marketplace. So thank you both very much. It's been really interesting. I'm sure we could just keep talking for hours on this subject um but uh, i think there's some really useful tips there so appreciate that thank you both very much thank you very much a big thank you once again to my guests and if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more insights from sales leaders and experts then please subscribe by heading over to revenueriser.com and join us for our next episode where we look at how to build compelling value thanks for your company and see you next time 